Hello and welcome to the final episode of the first season of the Being Better Together podcast with Learning from Excellence and Civility Saves Lives. In this episode, Chris and I have a conversation with Suzette Woodward. Suzette has had a really distinguished career in healthcare, in the clinical world as a PICU nurse, and then in a number of positions in patient safety, including a director role at the National Patient Safety Agency and as lead for the Sign Up to Safety initiative. In this conversation, Suzette reflects on what she's achieved and learned during her career in safety and also discusses opportunities for the future. We cover a lot of ground, including topics like how to define safety, what constitutes good leadership, what we mean by culture, and a host of other topics. There are many highlights in this conversation, but for me, I was most struck by a clear golden thread of compassion that goes throughout Suzette's career. She articulates a really clear desire to help others as the main motivation for her work. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as we did. So Suzette, it is absolutely fantastic to have you here. Um, for the benefit of people who are listening to this or watching this, can you tell us a wee bit about how you got to where you are? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I'm going to start in a very long, long, long time ago when I was, um, I was just at school and I had a best friend. She lived across the road and I absolutely loved her mum. Um, so we used to sit around the kitchen table and talk about all sorts of things. And she said to me, what are you going to do when you leave school? And I just thought, oh, God, I, what? I have, have to decide on something. Um, it, there's a career thing I have to do. Oh, my God. And um, she said, you just make her such a lovely nurse. And I said, oh, no, no. My mum's a nurse. My aunt's a nurse. Um, my father's a doctor. My grandfather's a doctor. You know, the whole caboodle I thought no 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 I, I, I could I could branch out doing something no she said no stick with what your genes tell you you should do um, and I thought oh okay um, so I went for an interview um, in London for for nursing and thought I'll give this a go which is really bizarre isn't it because most people talk about the fact that they always strive to be a nurse and it's their vocation and all that I just thought I'll give this a go um, I gave it one week and I absolutely fell in love with nursing I just thought this is this is just so joyful I can help people who are feeling scared and vulnerable and I can be there and be kind and supportive and wow it was just amazing and I've never ever looked back since and and I I went into you know I qualified as a nurse fabulous thought what shall I do next I'll do some pediatrics that will be fun um then um I got in my pediatric um rota I got PICU um I was um one of just two people who got PICU and everyone went oh my god do you really do you really want to do that and I I again first week thinking this is going to be so scary um and it was I'd found home. I'd found my home. I just um, I fell in love with the technicality, but also the the, oh, the depth of caring that you could do in PICU. And I did that for a solid eight years because I just couldn't move away from it. Um, and then I got to a point uh, <clears throat> people were saying, you know that you know what because I was progressing up and that's lovely you get to be a sister and then you get to be a senior nurse and this is really joyful and then somebody said you know you really should kind of branch out and do something a bit different and I'm like 
oh, I can't leave, I can't leave. Um, but I got sort of stimulated by some people who just went, just give, go out for a year, do something different, and then you can come back. That would be absolutely great. So I went out for a year um, and took this weird job called a clinical risk manager um, at Great Ormond Street Hospital. I applied for it. They didn't know what it was. <laughs> I didn't know what it was. Um, and you had no need for any qualifications, experience, expertise, or, or anything. Um, uh, and even the questions were like, how do you think you'll find out what a clinical risk manager does when you actually, if you get the job? And I'm like, okay, you know, this is fine. Um, really, really nerve wracking going it because I've been spending all my life doing jobs where you're really trained, you're honed to your limit of your experience, expertise and knowledge. And then you go into something and there's like hmm, blank sheet of paper, no idea. Um, so um, I was not happy um, and clinical risk management was all about um, at that time, probably still is form filling risk management registers and all of this stuff that I just thought was the most tedious thing I've ever come across in my life. Um, and then I bumped into somebody called Charles Vincent, who absolutely had no idea who he was and what he did. Um, and he said, um, this was some meeting or other of clinical risk managers. And he said he was going to set up a master's course in clinical risk. And um, of the people who were there, he said, anyone who wants to apply, that would be really lovely because it's our first course. And um, we want to see, um, you know, whether it whether it's a, a viable course or not. And so I got on that first master's at University College London um, thinking, whoa, this is really exciting. And I suddenly realized I got to meet, obviously, Charles, but Jim Reason and um, all sorts of amazing people who became my mentors and my supervisors for all sorts of pieces of work. And there was a science to this stuff. There was more than the blank sheet of paper. There was real substance to this stuff. We didn't call it patient safety. It was still clinical risk. But it, it felt it moved from the form filling to the changing people's lives to make care safer, to redesigning everything and to reduce the uh, elements of error, to really look at um, uh, the quantification of what's going wrong versus um, the way in which you might try to understand that. And clearly we were very much in the world of, of safety, what we might call safety one now, which is really good systems and processes for identifying how we're going to fail, what we're going to do to fix it. And I loved that because I felt like I'd been given some sort of tool. And in parallel with doing that, um, there was a big incident at Great Ormond Street Hospital where a child received vincristine intrathecally. And um, I um, literally never heard of uh, either vincristine or whether this was a problem. And I remember it was um, seven o'clock in the morning, I got rung um, uh, by um, a consultant who said, could you get into the hospital now? Um, because we need to talk to you about how we manage this incident. And as he was talking to me and I'm getting, you know, walking out, getting, going to the tube and all of that kind of thing, I was thinking, what, what is Vincristine? Um, and little did I know that once I got there, he described how globally um, there was this issue. Um, and around about that time, there was probably about 25, 30 of these incidents and that they were fatal um, that I think one or two had survived but um, uh, paralyzed for the rest of their lives um, and I just um, I using the word paralyzed I think I felt paralyzed at that point thinking what do I what do I do 
Um, and uh, so I was in the midst of all of this stuff with the masters, which was telling me, just really trying to figure out every tiny thing that's gone on, but not just with those people, right? The, the very sharp end, because Jim Reason had talked a lot about all these decisions and choices made weeks and months and years before can lead you to making some mistakes, you know, at the, at the very point of delivery. And so I thought, well, let's, should we do that? Um, and we convinced the organization to do this massive, massive investigation. And while doing that, um, we were, the doctors involved were investigated by the police um, and, and we did our investigation in parallel and we kind of met at a certain point and they just sat there and read everything that we'd come up with, which was basically the hospital had let these clinicians down um, and said, well, we don't need to progress with our case. Um, and this was pretty groundbreaking in, in its time um, in that um, we described a systematic incident and um, the Department of Health got hold of that and said, do you want to come work with us for a while? And I went there and in about six months of being there, um, working on the Bristol Inquiry report, um, by the way, um, and while being there, they said, we're going to set up this new agency called the National Patient Safety Agency. And I went, OK, fabulous. I'm going to work there then. Um, and so, oh, God knows, I'm so lucky. I just stepped from the Department of Health. I felt like ooh, one step into the National Patient Safety Agency. Then I got to be a director of the National Patient Safety Agency. Life was amazing. Boom. And then we got abolished by the Health and Social Care Act. And I thought, what do I do now? Um, and so I actually had um, some time to think. I didn't have a sabbatical. I just had a time, a period of time where they didn't know what to do with me because they didn't want to shift me over into any of the transition roles or anything. Um, and uh, so um, I got to be a volunteer at the Olympics, but that's besides the point. It just coincides with the summer that I had um, to think about what should I do with my career. Um, and while I was um, doing the Olympics, I got approached by NHS Resolution and said, uh, do you want to come and work with us? So I did um, and became a director at NHS Resolution. Um, and the world of clinical negligence, um, which really, really jarred with me. I found it really, really hard. It's very black and white. You either do wrong or you don't do wrong. Um, and, um, uh, and it didn't feel very caring in any way, shape or form to either the patients, the staff, anyone involved, really, even the clinical risk managers and the clinical governance managers. Nothing felt very caring about any of that system. And I think it still is is like that. Um, so um, I. Um, it was known, I was kind of thinking, um, this isn't necessarily right for me. So I got contacted by representatives of the Secretary of State for Health, <laughs> um, who said, um, would you like to run a campaign which should be focused on culture and, and staff called Sign Up to Safety? Um, I, didn't, I didn't even breathe. I just went, yep, <laughs> that's me. And um, uh, I was on the call and uh, I was at home and I just leapt. I just jumped like a tigger all the way around the whole house going, oh, I can breathe now um, because I'm going to do something that's going to be um, hopefully amazing. And I had six years of running Sign Up to Safety, which was an utter joy. Um, and, um, and, and then towards the end of that, they said, right, do you want to come and use everything that you've learned from Sign Up to Safety and feed it back into policy? So I went, 
to the Department of Health and I met policy team after policy team after policy team showing them what we'd learned um, from sign up to safety. Um, at which point, this is a very long story, I know, because I've been in the NHS for quite some time. Um, uh, and then towards the end of that, I knew that I was going to be going part time in a kind of retirement ish way because I knew this was a promise that I'd made a really, really long time ago to my mum, which was that I would always care for her in her last few years of her life. And so I knew this was coming to that point. And so I said to the Department of Health, thank you. This has been a, uh, the blast, the ride, the joy that I would never have expected at the end of my career. But um, I'm now going to go and retire, but go and, there, and come back to work and do part time um, freelance stuff. And that's where I am now. <laughs> so sorry for the for the long, long, long story, but um, that's how I got where I got. And it's utterly, utterly fascinating. I mean, it, your story is kind of the story of the development of safety within the NHS. You follow you follow the arc of it. I mean, I remember going to medical school and just nobody talking about safety and we didn't talk about clinical governance in fact it probably didn't even really exist uh, and you know sign up to safety I, I know that you love the job but for those of us those of us outside it encountering sign up to safety it was for many people and for me in particular it was transformative uh, the realizing that you could talk about safety and wrap it up in compassion and kindness and recognition of other people and not be talking about safety in terms of punishment and bad people and we need to stop them doing that. To realise that you could step away from that attitude and have a different attitude was just mind-blowing. And thank you so much. And you and the guys that you worked with, um, you did so much. I mean, I don't think you would know you would know about it, but in, around the country, people having their sign up to safety days, their weeks when there was come the kitchen table stuff, when people were just talking about what it meant, it genuinely was a transformative, uh, a transformative thing that you guys ran and completely changed how I and many other people think about safety and healthcare. So thank you for that. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I echo that, and and it's there's been a great ongoing legacy of that work. Um, but I just wanted to pick up on the fact that I mean we're going to talk about safety a lot today in this conversation. But is there something specific about safety that really appeals to you? What was it that drew you to that? Was it just serendipity and coincidence in the, that career you described where you? Um, made the most of some fantastic opportunities but was there something actually <clears throat> the nature of that work that appeals yeah there, there, I think there two things picking up um, uh, from from the stories that I've told you already but so I met those that I met there were two two doctors and a nurse in in relation to the Vin Christine incident I mean there were lots and lots of people but in in particular there were two doctors and a nurse who were you know the light was shining right intensely on on their behavior and their activity and um the fact that i could do something that obviously would never make them feel better but that that would actually show them that this wasn't all down to them um and that 
um, there was so, so much more to this, but also the fact that I could do that with a, a real genuine sense of, um, I, 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 want, I want to hold you. I want to hold you and make, it, make you feel just that little bit better about yourself and that you could do that with such compassion and empathy. I felt was so, 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 so important because uh, um, up until now, my personal profession, nursing, um, was not like that. Um, uh, it was very um, harsh, punitive. How dare you even contemplate, even thinking about making a mistake and let alone different choices or wrong choices. And on the face of it, 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 you could so easily see how you could go down that line. You know, a doctor held a syringe. A doctor possibly didn't look as 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 closely as they could have done at what was in that syringe. A doctor put that syringe into the wrong route. You could, and you know, and you could so easily just go, so obviously this person's fault. But it felt so important for me not to do that. And the fact that I felt that I could do that was a real. Um, uh, it just blew me away that I felt that I could have that kind of influence in a really positive way. So that was that was one thing. But secondly, was that um, when I went to the National Patient Safety Agency, I think I was still just in that world of it's all about fixing the problems, isn't it? Um, and I um, had an opportunity that so few people have the privilege of meeting people who work in safety. Um, who work in a much, much broader um, uh, definition of what you, we might describe as safety, which is designers and architects and um, some and psychologists and sociologists and, and, you know, all sorts of ologists who would say, um, you really need to think about why people behave like they behave. You know, the fact that if you, no matter how much experience you have, no, much, no, no matter how much practice you've done at something, no matter how much attention you pay to it, you will still make mistakes. So our whole life should be about how do we help those human beings be the very best people they can be. And I just thought, um, this is so, so brilliant. Um, and so I was always striving to find those things that that thread through everything, the relationships that we develop, the way we communicate, the way in which we support each other. All of those things felt so much more important to me, but we kept getting drawn by <clears throat> the people who are pressuring us to do things, outputs, products. We kept being drawn to sort of focus very much in siloed ways. So do something in medication safety, do something in for, um, you know, uh, infection control, do something like um, uh, something to do with pressure, um, uh, ulcers and so on. So all of these things were kept drawing us into topic focused stuff and it never felt right to me. So um, I, I think that um, what that did was therefore give me a trigger to say, I think there's a different way that we could do this. I was always looking for something different. And I think that that's, that's why it's compelled me the whole time. I feel a compelling um, passion to reach some sort of closure and I, we haven't got there yet of getting to the point where I feel like phew I can now breathe and rest because people are now on the right path I don't think they're on the right path yet so that's why it's still motivating me to keep doing it and I can see 
some beautiful landscapes in the future, some beautiful things that are in the future. And I feel like we, we, we are so close. Um, so that, that's what keeps, that's what got me in seeing that I could make a massive difference to actual people's lives. And also that there's so much more to this safety stuff than just forms and incident reports and the compelling need to keep going to actually keep people looking at it differently. That's great. Thank you. Well, we're going to come on to the kind of future um, in a second, but um, just reflecting on what you said, it's, it sounds like you've, you saw this kind of career avenue as an opportunity to extend compassion to the staff as well as the patients. Um, and actually, yeah, we're in the business of being compassionate, aren't we? That's what our industry is. And, and yeah, clearly we should be including ourselves and our colleagues in that envelope. Um, I think we've well, when, when, and it wasn't, there's been many, many an occasion where I've sat with a doctor, a nurse, a physio in the worst, probably worst, one of the worst times of their lives. And they've sit, sat there, I mean, in particular in relation to the death of a patient. And you cannot deal with that conversation without doing it compassionately. How can you do anything else? Um, and um, it, it's, it's beholden to us to support people compassionately and with empathy um, through, that, through that. And sometimes for the rest of their lives, I'm still in touch with some people um, from those very early days. Yeah, fantastic. I mean, it is, I speak from experience, absolutely devastating when you're involved in these, when things have gone wrong. Uh, despite literally doing your best yeah seems unfair and I, i've been involved in two uh, lots of mistakes my god but two really significant ones one in my clinical career and one in my policy career um and yeah you know i will never ever forget um that really pit of the stomach um totally absorbed self-absorbing sense of doom um and how you just think you're going to feel this bad forever um and the way that you know that um or you you feel you know that everyone is just looking at you as to say useless rubbish what earth why why does she even bother coming back to work you know it's i know how that feels um so i've seen it and i've seen it in others and i felt it very much in my myself it's characterised by shame, isn't it? Which is one of the most unpleasant emotions. But, and, yeah, total, um, shame, yeah. absolutely total shame, shame, yes. shameful about yourself, but also, um, I, I, in my, um, oh god, that sounds awful. I was about to say in my first book. Um, so, but, but in my, in a book I wrote, um, I wrote about um, the drug era that I was involved in, and. I'd completely forgot that none of my family knew anything about this because, you know, why would they? Um, I don't go around talking to people about how useless I am. I just, you know, um, so, and my mum read this book and she went, oh, and it genuinely, I got, I felt I got an edge. <laughs> like, oh, I thought you were my perfect, wonderful daughter who was like, you know, I've put on this pinnacle and you made this really big mistake. I genuinely think that she thought, less of me and that's that's probably me but wow no well i think actually one of the things we should all do is, is find a way that we can share how we've been involved in these things because it 
immediately reduces the burden that you experience if you hear that other people who have been you know in leadership positions highly successful or very good at their job and they of course are inevitably involved in these mistakes incidents whatever we want to call them um yeah no so thank you for sharing that and and yeah i think we need more people with this compassionate approach uh in this kind of industry Chris. I've got to say that for me, many, many years ago, the BMA produced this little pamphlet with um, a number of the most senior people within medicine talking about the mistakes that they had made. And some of those mistakes were literally life ending mistakes that they made. And they spoke about it in what I presume is an honest fashion um, and wrote it down. And it felt relieving is not the right word. It, it just felt that these were people acknowledging that within healthcare error happens when up until that point, as far as I was aware of the sort of the way that I was meant to be was perfect. And anything other than perfection meant that I wasn't good enough. And on reading about these really important senior people in the, the errors that they had made, it kind of opened the door to me to thinking about this stuff a wee bit differently and also realizing that it's not career ending, career defining. Um, and maybe that opens other doors to thinking about how we can, what we might be able to do about it. One of the things that really struck me there, Suzette, is when you're talking about the people that you met and the opportunities that came about through that, I, I, I'm, this is a reflection rather than, than a question, but it's, I have to say that through meeting you and Adrian and people like Neil Spensley and and Ali Walker, this has been an opportunity for me to sit in a room with people who think about these things with broadly, some broadly similar concepts. I would say we're all into the compassionate component of looking after people, but who look at it from very different angles. And that for me has been a massive, massive privilege. And I've always been very grateful for the amount of time that people within this bit of medicine are prepared to give to each other. You know, even in my world, you know, I went to Nashville and went to speak to Jerry Hicks. And this is a guy who, in, in my little world, he's a god. And, you know, he invites me in his room and he sits me down and spends an hour chatting to me. And, and you know, I'm virtually in tears in the room because basically I'm overwhelmed by how, how kind and lovely this guy is. And that exposure to other people has helped to form an awful lot of my thinking. And you've got this amazing exposure, you know, I mean, you're, you're in the room with James Reason and Charles Vincent, and at the very beginning, seeing this all just, just actually forming in front of you. And I, you know, it's quite a mind blowing concept to me. And, and I hope that for people who are listening to this or um, who, people who come to the conference, I hope they get a little bit of sense of that as well, of um, how people within this, this, this community are trying to understand safety and excellence and how we all we're all formative for each other you're slightly more formative than others i, I have um, a question sorry I, yes sorry. no because you, you just reminded me so when i was doing my masters um obviously you have to do a dissertation and um charles said that he was he was doing a small study um in an acute care trust um 
in London. And what they were doing was looking back at some case notes and seeing if they could quantify um, the, you know, the level of harm and, and level of severity and so on, based on the work that had been done in the, in the States. Um, it blows me away that um, I was actually involved in the, in the study that now everyone quotes a left, right and centre that 10% of our patients will be harmed by healthcare. And um, because at the time I remember thinking, well, do I want to do that one? I think because I'd quite like to work, you know, my God, uh, I didn't, so I didn't turn it down. Um, and I would say also that um, they, the conversations that we had, um, uh, which um, with Charles and Jim and, 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 and all sorts, were so similar to the conversations that we now have with all of the uh, adorable people you just described, because, and would be the same today, because they are the same people as we are. They are constantly exploring and thinking um, and wanting to um, expand their knowledge and their, their ideas. There's nothing fixed about any of their 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 ideas they really really want to so if you if you met Jim today and you talked about the Swiss cheese model um he'd laugh a lot um and he would tell you that it was fine it was great um and it ca caught the attention of an all, awful lot of people but that's all it really should have done um because my god he said it really didn't explain safety at all um in his head um so uh you know he was an exceptionally funny guy um so they are the same. We are all the same people. They're just amazing brains who are constantly trying to think what could we do differently. And we have the privilege of meeting those people time and time again, and we're surrounded by them and we need to cherish them, really. And that, that growth mindset is an incredible thing. And it is, it, I didn't think about it until you were speaking there, but it is something that is common amongst certainly the group of people that, that, I get to communicate with around this and and you know these are psychologically safe groups where people feel able to disagree with each other and have a laugh at themselves for being a wee bit daft about something when it's pointed out. Um, I suppose what I'd like to ask you next is where you see the the opportunities in healthcare at the moment what sort of angle do you think we should be heading at or might we head in? I mean, the obvious thing for me to say would be safety too. And, and absolutely that, that, that is there, but I need to kind of start a little bit before then, because um, I do think that um, we, um, and, and I know that um, those that uh, study safety too well um, or in depth um, would say the same. It, it, safety too being, let's look at a functioning system and see that it checks that it's going okay before, rather than constantly looking at how it fails, but, and trying to really study and understand how the system is functioning. Um, but you, um, I, I still think you have to have safety one and safety two. You have to have both. You have to have both because we're not ready yet to just look at it from a functioning system perspective, but also because um, every system, um, every process that's in safety is designed to take us through that whole failure route. And it's going to take a while for us to kind of shift shift it over more and more and more to more of the safety to approach. But equally, we owe it to, we owe it to our staff and our patients to understand why does it fail occasionally. And it's turning the question, which I know that you all know, which is, so why did it fail in this instance? So that's still important though, 
to say, why did it fail? Even though I really would like us not to use the word failure and all of those things. I st and and I, I desperately want us to start looking at how this system functions and how we can keep replicating a functioning system and strengthening a functioning system. The occasional failure will give you nuggets of information that will tell you, okay, maybe the system needs to be strengthened in this bit and this bit. So it's using the failure in a really much more positive way. So I do think that, that there's, there's, there's that stuff. Um, I, because also what I really worry about is I think that they think people think that safety too is simply looking at success, success. And the word success being then transported into outstanding achievement, as opposed to just getting through the day where a few things may have, you know, miss, missing notes or even, even perhaps even uh, the odd drug error and so on, um, which the day has got through. It's been achieved. It's, the system has functioned to its, its ability because the other um, uh, understanding that we have, obviously around complexity, but also about, about variability and the fact that, that it, it is inevitable. Um, I always think of a seismic chart or some sort of weird thing that goes up and down a lot, but that, that there is an inevitability, sadly, about the fact that there are, there's never going to, God, can you imagine going in? It just wouldn't exist. This sort of plastic world of perfection. It just, it just, it's not going to happen. So it is about understanding what is our limit um, and how can we perhaps reduce that limit of variability to make the system function as well as it possibly could most of the time. But it will always come back for me to, um, to the people within that system. So absolutely we need to uh, professionalize um, the world of patient safety and get the people who know this stuff around designing um, systems, designing equipment, designing all of that stuff, all that really amazing stuff that the MPSA started to do and then drifted away from. Um, we need to get all of that, but then we also need those psychologists to really understand how can we help people do the and, and, and create barriers and nudges that prevent the people from doing the, the wrong thing as far as we possibly can. But we we won't do we won't have this lovely system of safety if we don't also clear as we've talked about really deeply care for the people who are having to cope and adapt and adjust and do all the things to you know get through their day and that comes to me not only to relationships and the way we talk to each other and the way that we can open up with each other but <clears throat> more and more and more it comes to to mind the whole world of um, or lack of diversity, inclusivity and equality. And the more I get into this world, I see, I know, meet people, individuals who may because of their gender or their sexuality or their ethnicity or the color of their skin are dealt very, very, very differently or feel very, very differently when things don't go as planned or as expected, or they fail. And that feels very much a nugget that we are simply not dealt with as well as we could do. Um, and it feels like I need to just veer off. And I don't know where it's veering off on my little route to, to, to finally getting somewhere, but it feels like I'm, I need to settle on that. I'm really, really focused on that because without that, we will not get a just culture. We will not get psychological safety. We will not, we will have people silenced. We have, um, and we will not get to the 
thought of understanding a functioning system that really understands you know the work is done as opposed to work as imagined and all of that stuff if we don't actually get to the point of treating individuals as as equally as we possibly can and celebrating their differences but listening to them and listening to those diverse voices we will then i think help to create that collective wisdom um, in terms of creating a safer system well and so many thoughts, so many things flying around inside my head. I just want to touch on one tiny, tiny, tiny thing from the beginning of what you're talking about when you're talking about safety too and the, the, the system and understanding the system. You introduced me to um, a, a, another piece of Charles Vincent work um, some time ago that just made me stop in my tracks. And that was we tend to look at the system and imagine the system looks the same to everybody within healthcare. And of course, it's a behemoth healthcare. And there are lots of different ways of looking at the system. But Vincent and Amalberti looked at that. And, and I wonder if you could just shine a little bit of light on that for a second or two. Is that possible? Sarah? Yeah, no. Well, so um, Safe for Healthcare, written by uh, obviously um, Charles and Rene, um, Charles being Charles, and Rene, um, equally, equally adorable guy who's worked most of his life in um, what he would describe as um, uh, uh, risk resilience or, um, uh, uh, or risk management. Um, uh, and He's a really, really, really deep thinker. Totally, um, uh, I think, uh, it, humble, um, would not feel that he has anything grand to say. This is another trait, I think, from some of these really great thinkers. They, they just think, I just want to share some of my wisdom and they don't realize how utterly amazing they are. Anyway, wrote a book called Safer Healthcare, um, free to download, which is astonishing in itself. And um, within it, there were enormous amounts of nuggets. But the, uh, in relation to things like caring for people in care homes, caring for people at home, which totally blew me away. I'm thinking, gosh, yes. And it really reminded me of a friend of mine who was dying of cancer and she was being cared for at home. And she there was a drug error at home. Her, her husband gave her the wrong drug and how utterly mortified he was. And I'm thinking, God, how do you even deal with all of that at home but that but so I digress within that book there was this um really brilliant description for me I've always thought when you, people talk about a system I, I I can't like pushing back on some things and like what do you actually mean by the system so do you mean the whole entire NHS do you mean the um, primary versus acute? What, what do you mean by the system? And they beautifully describe that the system is broken down. And, and they would say, the two of them, Charles and Rene, have said there's probably more than the three that we've described, but we're landing on the three because that feels like we, we, we've got somewhere. Um, because the system is just like any ecosystem, and let's go with the ecosystem analogy, made up of multiple different components um, and different ways in which there is a need to behave. And the beautiful infographic that you've, you've created describes that so well when you've got um, the ultra safe system, a high reliability system and the ultra adaptive system. So ultra safe where processes are are, you need to have processes that trump the people, as it were, that the, the process will, will keep the people on a narrow path of providing things to uh, sometimes the nth degree, such as radiotherapy or the amount of chemotherapy you give somebody. 
ultra safe, but you can't have an entire health system that's ultra safe. It just doesn't really work like that. Um, and otherwise you'd be fixed and you'd be like straitjacketed into trying to behave as minutely as every step that you took. You can't, you can't do that. So the vast majority is high reliability where you want everything to be imbalanced and the processes to help the people. But sometimes the people might adapt and adjust against those processes and policies and procedures. And then the ultra adaptive where you have no idea what's coming in the door. That's your world, Chris um, and, and Adrian. So no idea what's coming in the door, what's coming in next. I always remember a GP saying to me, do not just think that's acute care because you should be a GP. You know, it is, a, who knows what's coming in and it might not be quite as you know dramatic, um, but who knows what's coming in and you've got 15 minutes to diagnose it, think it through and uh, decide on whether you're going to send them home, refer them on or, or what. Anyway, again, I digress. Um, so ultra adaptive and I'm thinking, right, wow, this is now encapsulated the fact that the system has different components within it. And then there are obviously more than this. And then it reminds me of the fact that people use the word culture as if it's also one culture um, and there are multiple different components of culture and the subcultures um, that, that exist. So when somebody says we need to change the system or we need to change the culture, you actually have to push back and you say, what part of the system do you want me to change? Or what part of the culture do you want me to change? Awesome. Thank you. That's great. I mean, it's such a such a complex um, thing to tackle, isn't it? Um, trying to sort of encapsulate a, a whole system, and we we inevitably reduce it down to uh, compartments and types. Yeah, I think there is kind of. I mean, wonder what you think. Uh, transcending all of that, every type of system and culture, um, there is a human delivering care to another human and this sort of focus on relationships, um, enhancing relationships, which then enhances performance and experience is, I think, key um, and something we should pay attention to across the board. I was um, uh, deeply moved uh, the first time I met Scott Morrish. Um, Scott Morrish, um, a young father of a three-year-old boy who died of sepsis, deeply moved by this man. If you ever have an opportunity to ever meet such an incredible human being who, um, who totally summed that up for me, he just basically said, all I ever wanted from any of my interactions with healthcare is to have a conversation, one human, human being to another. I did not understand how I suddenly became this, the father of Sam or um, the complainant, the agitator, the, the, the somebody to fear. How did I become that? And why didn't anyone just sit down with me and talk to me about just what went on? Um, and so if we think then to the people on the other side of that and the staff who are totally terrified of saying the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing. Um, uh, they, they leave the compassion at the door of that room where they go in and explain stuff, which is not what they really want to do. Um, it's just that's what the system, the system, the, 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 the way of we doing stuff like this really forces them to be and behave 
And so Scott is always in my head when I feel like I want to think about how do we talk to each other just as much as we talk to families and patients and um, the people who have lost their loved ones. Um, just think of Scott. What would Scott want? And he'd want me to be as human as I possibly could be. Um, and then it just feels like then you become that human being um, and you can have that conversation. So, yeah, thank you for reminding me. Mm. Yeah, thank you. Um, when we talk about safety, we do, do you think we all mean the same thing? There's, um, there's a few definitions, aren't there? The, the classic being the um, absence of harm, um, which then I, you know, I always wonder about, well, if, if it's the absence of something, um, what actually is it fundamentally? Because if you remove harm, there must be something remaining, um, which may be which may be describable in a more positive context. Uh, having said that, it may just be ineffable and we can't actually get down what it is. Um, and then whole noggles and the safety two kind of definition that safety is a condition where as many things as possible go right um, is a little bit more tractable, but still um, open to interpretation. Have you got a preferred definition? For me, safety is... Um... See, I'm trying to put it in, in just ordinary words, because I think sometimes we can get really hung up on the definition of. I remember when I wrote um, Seven Steps to Patient Safety at the National Patient Safety Agency, um, I wrote a certain definition of, of patient safety, which got edited and, um, and honed. And, you know, and every word was like, do we need that word or that word? You think, oh, God. It, can we try to unconstrain ourselves and just talk about safety in, uh, so if I talk about safety in my own life, you know, I want to get in my car and I want to drive to my mum and I want to make sure that I use all the gears properly and, um, you know, and I stop at a red light and I get there really safely and I come back again and there's no, nothing, nothing eventful, nothing has happened that has traumatized me during that whole thing. So that's, that's, an element of safety for me. The other element of safety is being, which I would never do, but getting on an aeroplane and jumping out um, and uh, uh, skydiving. I'd absolutely want to make sure that everyone around me knew everything that was expected, their knowledge and their experience, and they, you know, wow. And they gave me all of the right equipment that worked. Um, and that when I jumped out, I had the parachute and I was, I'd been taught how to, you know, so there is something about safety being, having all of the, right stuff, the right equipment, the right protection, the knowledge, the experience, all of those things that build that up to enable me to do something as risky as that, or to even just drive my car. So yes, it is about, um, safety is about a system that is, um, is going well, is, is getting me to my mom and back again. Um, it isn't crashing along the way. That's not safety. That's, but that's, but when I ask a lot of people that I speak to, what is the first thing you think about when I say the words patient safety, they will say accident, mistake, incident. Then they'll go on to the words like fear, blame, shame. Whereas what they should be saying is, um, you know, success, achievement, um, joy, how joyful is it to have a safe day? How joyful is it to save someone's life? How joyful is it to save someone's life? And how joyful is it therefore to do safety when it is a really positive thing? And that's, I'm sorry, but I'm I can't give you a definition which is 
because I don't think that we, we are clear yet as to what that is, because when we start talking about the definition of safety and safety two terms, it always gets knocked back. And I just think that maybe we should just stop worrying so much about it and talk about it in real, real um, experiences about what it feels like to be safe. Um, and it is definitely not about crashing or giving the wrong drug or um, or making the wrong choices. Yeah, I agree. It's really hard to define, isn't it? The problem is you, we kind of have to define it when we're yeah, I know. <laughs> when we're making policy or trying to demonstrate progress. Um, and I suppose the probably the most important thing to do is listen to what the patients think is safe and start with that. But but we can, I think think laterally and, and try and demonstrate how safety can be considered in a positive construct as well. Um, but there's there's a long way to go before we reach agreement if we ever do, I think. The trouble with definitions is, and this is what happens, everyone gets really fixated around them. Um, so when, I, as I say, seven steps to patient safety and there was this, this, this defined thing, that defined def, um, definition, which was um, written down and sort of, you know, ink um, and published and all that kind of thing then gets used by regulators and policy setters and society as a whole to be the baseline judge so, uh, of whether you've achieved it or not so therefore if you have a, a deficit-based definition of safety then that's how you're going to be judged so you're absolutely right if we i think that absolutely we must land on a much more positive approach to safety as that definition so that then you'll be judged on achieving it um, rather than not achieving it as it were one of the issues i think is that if you look at that kind of whole nargle normal distribution that's that i've certainly put up a lot of times and is well known i think in the safety two world is that you have it sort of reduces safety to this spectrum where you have excellence on one end everything normal practice in the middle that leads to success in the vast majority of times and then uh, failure or extreme negative events on the other um, and it's very easy to understand a bit like the swiss cheese model you can immediately get it um, but i've come to realize i'm sure well I'd be interested to see if you have as well that um, that's a massive oversimplification actually the the stuff that goes really well at one end has a completely different signature from the reverse of failure, you know. So excellence is not the opposite of failure at all. They're, they are, they they have completely different underpinnings, and and that's where you know I think I have this bias towards trying to understand what's working very well because I don't think you can get that by by understanding failure. Yeah, absolutely brilliant point, um, and is for many many things in safety, which is why I think that why I'm compelled to keep keep searching in a way for the depth because many things in safety have been oversimplified um and and i'm i would e say i'm equally guilty of that because i think sometimes you have to oversimplify stuff to be able to explain it um and to get to get everyone to be um a, a, at a certain level of understanding of course you should do and and the safety two stuff is so compelling in that way that you you can explain it equally the just culture has been massively oversimplified, especially if you look at the Marx concepts. Um, uh, David Marx talks about obviously error versus risky behavior versus versus reckless behavior. If you actually genuinely ask um, people in healthcare, um, give me examples of 
all of those three um, and, and draw a distinction between all of those three that absolutely find that really, really, really hard. Um, and, you know, uh, we can be both erroneous and risky and perhaps even reckless all in the same kind of moment. Um, and um, so oversimplicity is great for explaining stuff. It is great for getting people to a certain level of understanding, but um, now I think we absolutely have to try to get beneath the surface of that simplicity to really understand, um, because without it, we won't really start to erode into trying to um, uh, create that safer system as we can. Um, I think that the, um, the looking, the failure points um, don't just absolutely, so a medication error um, you, could, you could say, so 10 times the dose of a drug error, which is the one that I was involved in. Um, you could, again, simply, the trouble is with failure is you can just totally oversimplify that and go, 10 times the dose drug error was obviously due with A, B, and C, um, and so therefore the solutions are A plus, A, B plus, and C plus. Um, and yet every... If, if you took it to its nth degree, every single error is subtly different. Um, and so then what we have to do is then understand the subtleties around all of that and then look at that, but, and then shift that to one side and look at, so how many times do we deliver these medications and how many times do they go uh, brilliantly? And the work that Jessica Mesman does, which I really want to see and hear more of, which is just studying the mundanity, uh, studying the things we do every day, I think there's a real nugget in there. Um, and I just hope that we get to learn an awful lot more about that um, and how we do that, um, which then we may then go back to the failure points, but, um, but we study more about that. Um, and the thing, the, the thing that's within the Jessica Mesman's work is something that Atul Gawande talked about at one point, which is um, we never get to see other people's, or rarely get to see other people's work in, in terms of a mundane task um, in the way that um, maybe sports people do or other people do in, in terms of somebody watching what you do that they also do and they go, oh, I use my left hand for that when you, you're using your right. That's really intriguing. Um, and you have a conversation about something as small and as mundane as something you might do every day. And that feels really insightful about how we can really learn from each other. So we rarely do that. Yeah. That reminds me of the Exnovation con concept yes. where you can, I mean, for those who don't know, Exnovation is this idea that, that there's already hidden kind of competence within the system. So you can, you can uncover uh, what what works well by talking to each other about how you do your daily work. Uh, I've tried this a few times and picked up, basically pick up tips to which lead to more efficient work or more successful work. Because often we get landed in the deep end, don't we? And then we just, I mean, yes, you know, we might have seen somebody else do it, but we, we, we work our way through it and we may become amazing at it, but we've worked our way through it. And it would be really lovely to be able to have that, uh, privilege of time and opportunity mm. to watch somebody else do this stuff. Yeah. So, so I guess that the sort of the what comes up next is the question: Where does safety in this sort of safety journey go for you, Suzette? What? Where do you see the the next horizon? So there's um, 
yeah, there's where I'd like it to be and where it's likely to go. Um, so um, um, it slightly saddens me that um, we're not grasping we're not grasping at stuff that I think that people should be grasping at, and I'm I'm trying to figure out why. So so we have um, we have sadly not as much leadership in patient safety as I'd like. Um, at at a national level, that's perhaps because I'm biased. Because I think that you know it would have been really nice if the National Patient Safety Agency could have continued. But um, but there is a sense of um, of things being stuck. It feels like things are stuck. So um, we've got the brilliant book "Still Not Safe" by Bob Weirs and Kathleen Sutcliffe, which I felt could have just described my whole career. Um, and they. But even in that, the ending sort of gave me a so what, um, so which is fine because none of us really know the answer as such at the moment. But it left me with a with a so what, um, and um, and I, I got the sense that um, that we need as healthcare to really truly understand what does, what does safety mean for us as opposed to what it means for the aviation industry or any other high risk industry. Um, so there feels like some um, level of expertise and professionalism and knowledge around healthcare and patient safety that needs to rise and to grow. And I know there are an awful lot of people who are utterly brilliant at all of this stuff, but I don't feel we're hearing their voices. I don't feel that we're hearing their lived experiences of how they're trying to take some of these amazing concepts and uh, and ideologists ideologies and translating them into practice. So I work with um, some individuals in all sorts of different trusts across the whole of England, and they're battling against the fact that they think that it would be really lovely if we just tried to explore some of this safety to world or, or, or try to really think about how do we genuinely create a psychologically safe environment or, or, or team or unit or so on. And they're getting pushed back by um, perhaps the management or the leadership of their organizations who are saying the national patient safety strategy says we should be a doing a b and c and the care quality commission will be judging us against these particular criteria um, and the um, any other council gmc gdc nmc and, and so on expect this is these are the expectations of how we should be doing safety and what you're describing is fine and nice and dandy, but it's just definitely not going to be something we have the time for. So what really worries me is that we are being um, kept on that treadmill of doing the same old, same old, same old. And how do we get off that? How do we get off that when, we're, when we've got this, these constant pressures to, um, to do the same thing? Um, so, um, you know, my initial desires um, in midway in my career was thinking perhaps naively that I could help influence the regulatory system, the political system, the policy system. And, um, and I would say that there, that there are a number of people who have been able to do bits of that. So um, the conversations that um, I would have with my policy colleagues today would be really different from the conversations I'd have with policy colleagues 20 years ago. So the difference in conversation is, is there. And I know from the conversations I've had with the regulators and um, the colleagues that I have working in there are that they understand the need for shifting 
away from puni uh, punitive approaches and, and the generation of blame and fear and so on. Yet, um, they also feel like there's these big words like accountability and responsibility, and that we have to make sure that, you know, people have people pay for some of this stuff. So whether that's, you know, organizations get scrutinized and castigate, castigated and, you know, and put into the in, into the spotlight for everyone to sort of scream at it, it feels very gladiatorial. Um, and so that's I, so what I'm getting at is I think that where I'd like us to be is a million miles away from all of that. But how do we get a million miles away from all of that when it's being pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed? We, you, we're being made to be the audience watching uh, the people in the middle um, fighting it out and trying to prove their worth. And, and um, it's unacceptable that we are like that. And so I'm, what I'm trying to draw is away from safety and away from healthcare and looking at things like social movements, which has always been a big passion of my life, and looking at things like Black Lives Matter, um, the, the whole um, influence and role modeling that the most amazing uh, English team and, and Gareth Southgate, I will not make any apologies to put them on some sort of pinnacle. I think they've done something astonishing. And I think we should really be paying attention to that level and of integrity and respect and brilliant, authentic, decent leadership and the difference that that can make. So those people feel like they've had them. Yes, they've not reached the final. They've not won the final, but they've had an experience that has enhanced every aspect of their lives. That's how they describe it. Um, and that they've got this cohesive team of people who are there for each other. And that's what I want. That's what I want in healthcare, that we have this massive, massive cohesive team that are there for each other with leaders who are respectful, humble, telling the truth, genuinely moving away from minute scrutiny of individuals or units or even trusts to looking and thinking about the system and how it's working and all of its complexity. So how do we get there when we're here? Um, and that's that's what's going on in my brain all of the time. That's that's a, a, a huge journey. I mean, there, there are so many things to think about in that. I, I want to go back to, to just the very, very beginning of that answer when you talked about what does safety mean for us versus aviation versus other industries. I think there's a parallel there, and I, and I want to ask you, because I know that you do a lot of leadership work, and, and the parallel here for me is, what does leadership mean for us? Because it is the behaviours of our leaders that set the tone around how we respond to things like safety. And I'm not sure, I think we talk about leadership a lot, but I'm not sure that we have a shared vision of what good leadership looks like within the NHS. And even when we do talk about it, I think that we have we have certain areas within the NHS, some of whom you may have worked for, for whom leadership doesn't look like, um, well, doesn't look compassionate. And I, and I just wondered where your head was at on the, the relationship between leadership and our models of leadership and how we discharge our responsibility to have a, a safe culture. A lot of the clinical leaders um, uh, and other senior leaders, chief executives that I work with, um, uh, they go through some sort of 
um, evolution, um, they start by thinking that they have to have all of the answers. That um, when somebody comes to them with a question, they will they will give them the solution, even if that solution is wrong. But they just feel compelled to give uh, to to help fix things, to give the answers. Um, to the, then they go through the point of go. Uh, but in the background, they know I don't have all of the answers. Uh, why is somebody asking me this question? It's really, really hard. Um, and but um, then they go through a point of recognizing that. And then it, eventually, for me, a really good leader is somebody who says, I don't have I don't necessarily the answer to that. This is a dilemma that we're all facing. Let's work out through what I mean by that. And the work of dilemmas and polarities is actually something that's quite important for safety. What I mean by that is that um, there, in, in healthcare, there is rarely a situation where we can say we can do this over this. Um, and there's an obviousness about that. It's much more about saying if we do most of this and a bit of this, there's an and or. So it's what. So the polarity mapping is where you find an issue, even something like if you compare incivility and kindness. So you look at incivility and you actually ask some really difficult questions, which is. What's the benefits of incivility? What are the good bits about incivility? What's the value of incivility? Which helps you actually think about it in a different way. And equally, you could actually say the same thing about kindness. What's the negativity about kindness? What is bad about kindness? When you do polarity mapping, it helps you then draw that out to say, so what can we do to minimize one and maximize the other? So a, um, a good leader is somebody who understands that we are experiencing dilemmas all of the time there is no not always this lovely right or wrong answer and that they seek that from the people around them so that is where they have the ability to be humble and say i don't know the answer let's work through that together so that's number one and a lot of people really fear doing that because they fear that they're going to look like they don't know what they're doing and they can't lead but unless you do that um, then you will you will not benefit um, from uh, the, the wisdom around you and you will make bad decisions. So that's number one. The other thing about leaders is that they, the lot of leaders think that they have to be really quite directive, somewhat aggressive um, sometimes. And there's a, that command and control stuff. And we know that there are a bit like um, uh, Rene and Charles would probably describe it and break it up because there are situations where command and control is totally the right thing to do. And there are situations when you want to give to people absolute full flexibility. Again, perhaps the right thing to do in certain circumstances. So I think that's another piece of work that we could start to learn about and break up a bit more to be more, more articulate about. Because um, uh, we're very good at going, don't do this, do this. Um, and uh, so don't do command and control because now we're being all flexible and autonomy uh, and encouraging autonomy. We're actually, no, sometimes we need to do command and control and sometimes we need to give people autonomy. So a good leader would understand all of that. When's the time that I step in and do something really significantly de decisive? And when's the time when I step back and go, no, actually, I think we all need to work through this. So again, there's, there's that other element, a really hard thing to learn. Um, but finally, the, the, the good leader is back to the whole thing talked about before. And I don't mind going on and saying the same things, but it is about being compassionate. It is about being empathetic. It's about being a decent human being and, and being kind. And 
Again, the lovely version of kindness for me is that that comes from the world of Brené Brown, where she says quite clearly, kindness isn't just simply about being nice and fluffy to people. Kindness is about being very clear about what you expect from them. And if they don't meet those expectations, asking, can I help? Uh, is there anything I can do? But also maybe even saying, I'm not sure that your skills and experience and your mindset or anything about what you're doing fits for the role that you're in. And maybe we need to work together about what their future could look like that might not even be here. Um, so that is kindness. I want somebody to do that for me. If I'm struggling, I want people to recognize I'm struggling, care about the fact that I'm struggling. Don't label me as incompetent or lazy, but genuinely help me find my way through it. And even if that's, you don't really fit for whatever it was. It was really kind once when I applied for a job that I was completely, totally not right for. And the people said, I think that we could have employed you, but I'm not entirely sure that would have been kind because I think that you would have struggled. And I thought, wow, that's that's kindness for me, which is not giving me the job that I thought I wanted and telling me why. Um, so, OK, those are what these are really good leadership um, traits for me. Thank you very, very much. That's great. Um, I was wondering if uh, you think there's a place for what we're doing with learning from excellence in the future of safety, but also actually in leadership now, what you were just saying there. So that, as you know, this is kind of rooted in positive psychology. Or um, We actually came up with learning from excellence, which is not a new idea, you know, the idea of recognising what's working, um, giving positive feedback. But when we came up with it a few years ago, it was before I heard of positive psychology and then you know the doors open and I found out about these similar disciplines and concepts but this idea that you can recognize things like virtuous acts kindness generosity and try and learn from it and things like positive deviance is related do you think this uh, along with appreciation appreciative inquiry has a role in the future of safety and leadership or do you think it sits outside that Oh, no, it's it's absolutely integral. Um, and so I'm going to start with, um, so uh, I remember a really long time ago, there was a campaign um, in, um, in the London Underground uh, where they put up posters where they said, um, Josie has made your day even safer by the fact that um, she noticed that there was a Coke can on the side of the track um, and that she picked it up and um, put it, um, you know, in, in in the bin or whatever it might be or Jim has made your day um, even safer or even more brilliant by the fact that um, you know he's thought about a new system for make, making people go through turnstiles more effectively whatever it might be and I remember I was totally I fell in love with those posters um, telling me the brilliance of people and then you get um, drips of that through um, through um, Documentaries like The Hospital, which is an astonishingly brilliant programme where you suddenly realise um, that the world is full of amazing people and how brilliant they are. But um, we don't concentrate on those positive stories or the positive examples or um, just really, really, really trying to describe those. So, this, so, that's, so I'm setting a tone for the fact that the seeing, seeing um, positive stories, positive examples um, of, of people at work um, was really enhancing, I felt, emotionally and, and psychologically. 
And then you get to the point of um, you're in your work and very, very rarely, even in your appraisals, very rarely does somebody sit down and say, I really like the way that you do this. So because even in appraisals, it's, it feels like, um, you know, yeah, you're quite good at that. But, you know, should we just talk about where would you like to be developed for the future and stuff? And I'm, huh. um, and to have somebody say, do you know, I, w- I watched you um, sit down with that family and you explained what was going on with the care of their child um, and what was going to happen in the next 12 hours. And you were so clear and you were so eloquent and they really understood and felt they were in a better place at the end of it. And I watched you do that. And I loved the tones that you used or the words that you used. If somebody would said that to me when I was um, a, a, a pediatric intensive care nurse, I absolutely would have totally valued that because I would have thought, okay, oh, right. So, because you do have this constant feeling, am I doing this right? Am I getting this right? And to somebody actually say to me, um, yeah, it works. Um, I just so loved that. I would have, um, and I would have wanted to do it time and time and time again. And I would have had that feeling of confident, confidence and credibility about what I was doing that would have been given to me by somebody else, which is so lovely. And so therefore, the joy of that in yourself is great. But then the joy of doing that for someone else. So um, the very early days of learning for excellence, which I remember feeling incredibly tearful at that first conference um, and, and going and looking at all of the posters and bumping into Emma and saying, why are you not in floods? This is so moving and so brilliant, um, was totally changed my way of um, line managing my team. Um, I'd like to say totally, I probably hope I was pretty kind and nice in the first place, but, but it made me think, do you know what? This is really, really important to be able to say to my team and pick out from my team the good things that they're doing, not just brush over that because um, and I'm not somebody who's going around telling them how bad they are, but, but I'm not also really emphasizing the good bits about them to really do that in a really genuine way, not just, oh, thanks, great, great team, lovely day, let's move on, to do that really genuinely, which is what you've always espoused and describe exactly what you mean by um, the behavior that you're witnessing that you feel is good, um, really made a difference to the way that um, I, I line manage my team at Sign Up to Safety. And I genuinely think that we moved from colleagues who liked each other to friends who worked with each other because it changed something about the, the, the dynamics from colleagues to friends and people who really cared and, and, and cared enough to point that out. So what does that all mean with safety? Well, if you are telling people that they're good at this um, and, that, um, and they want to therefore replicate it and strengthen it, then we could broaden that into every aspect of the care that people provides so that therefore the, the safe care they're providing, you're enhancing and highlighting to them so they will hopefully continue to be as far as possible continue with that safe care that they're providing. So of course it's integral, along with the language that should be used around the whole uh, world of appreciative inquiry. Um, uh, So the really positive approach about addressing this, which then draws me into the world of investigations and um, scrutiny and the the way in which we talk to people when something hasn't gone as planned. The, we, if we shift that language into a significantly more positive um, approach and, and um, framing of our questions, 
again, we will get a very different response rather than shutting people down. So it's the two together work so brilliantly as a foundational uh, component of safety. Yeah, thanks. I mean, the, you've described really well that impact of positive feedback on uh, self-efficacy, that the, the that um, assurance that you're doing the right thing to give you confidence, um, but also the fact that expressing gratitude and positive feedback compliments with your team members improves your relationships. Um, and then the, the, the role of appreciative inquiry I see as being one of its strengths, <laughs> strengths uh, being a strengths-based approach is that it's generative. So you can then generate new ideas as to, uh, as to what to do next based on what we know already works. And clearly, intuitively, to me and sounds like to you as well, this fits in with safety, but also transcends other uh, domains. Um, now, one of the things I'm going to hand this over to Chris uh, to get a bit deeper into this, but I think also positive feedback, gratitude, compliments, they're all that kind of same uh, concept can be used to, as a kind of moral reinforcer to, to potentially reinforce behaviours and relationship uh, or behaviours around relationships that we, that we think are morally good. Um, and this may be an approach, I'm interested to know whether we think this may be an approach to tackle behaviours that we think are morally bad, like rudeness, sensibility, bullying, etc. But I'll hand over to Chris to think about that a bit more and uh, ask the next question. I don't actually think there's a whole heap more for me to ask on that. I mean, uh, uh, I think, yeah, I mean, how would how would you use some of the things that you've talked about, Suzette, um, to tackle incivility? And maybe you wouldn't. Maybe you do it something completely, a completely different way. And I'm just curious to know what's going through your head around that. Um, I've thought about this a lot. Um, and... It's like all things, there's not a nice, neat, simple answer. Because when I think about um, when I think about the um, the power that I can have um, in relation to creating an environment where I can call out um, the things that I might see, uh, whether that be rudeness, incivility, or bullying, if I'm in a position where I feel an element of power. So I'm the leader of the team or I'm the director of the unit or I'm the, that gives, even actually if I put my uniform on, that always gave me a sense of, oh, be slightly more um, courageous um, with my uniform on. Um, I can do that. And um, I can do that because of a level of status perhaps I'm in. Um, so, the reason why I'm saying all of that and I, uh, is that when I'm on the when I was on the receiving end of it, I didn't have that level of status. I didn't have any power whatsoever. And I um, so if I ask if you are asked the question, how do you deal with instability? As somebody on the receiving end of it, I have no idea because I, I think I need to be more honest about that with people because I get a lot of people saying to me, how do you deal with incivility? And I will, you know, quote Chris Turner like uh, anything and I will go, well, yeah, you do A and B and C, D. And it all feels very nice and lovely and simple. But actually, I have no idea because in the situation that I was in, 
I didn't cope with it. I didn't deal with it. And um, I walked away from it. And that felt like the totally easiest thing to do. So, and if I was in the same situation today, I would do the same thing because even with armed, with everything, the knowledge that you have so beautifully given everybody, the knowledge that I now have from the facts and the theories and the concepts, when you are in it and somebody is being, in my case, probably bordering on really quite harsh bullying, um, I was totally lost. I didn't know what to say, how to say it, when to say it. Um, I didn't know who to seek help from. I didn't, and um, any any tiny aspects that I tried didn't work whatsoever. I, I, I tried to be open. I actually said once, do you know how this is making me feel? Um, at which point, this was a Friday, by the time it got to Monday, this person came back to me and said, would well, you know how this makes me feel? You know, and it just like, oh God, that didn't work. Um, I tried ignoring it. I tried being, I, what I did was I just, reduced down to this much, much smaller version of me, the version of me that didn't give any of myself to this place that I was now working in and that was desperate to get out as soon as possible. So I know that's not what people want to hear um, because, but maybe some people feel like that. And, and, and if you can help someone like me know what to do in that circumstance, because I didn't cope and I did and I wouldn't know I wouldn't know how to do it now. But that's the receiver. Somebody who's witnessing it and leading it, I felt like I could do something about that. So what what how do we bring those two together? Well, I wasn't anticipating this would come back in my direction, but I will <laughs> I, 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 I will talk about that for a second, if that's okay with you, Adrian. If I just touch this, okay. Um I don't know what I'd have done if you'd said no. I really don't. <laughs> okay. Um, so, so a bunch of reflections. The, the first thing is that on online you see people talking about bullying. The people who talk about bullying and how to deal with bullying almost always have authority themselves. So they are talking about a completely different experience to the one that we have pretty much all had when we were very junior members of staff within, for most people who are listening to this or, or watching this in the NHS, and we have felt poorly treated by somebody who is senior to us. And the asynchronicity of that relationship determines what we're allowed to do in that setting. So it is extremely difficult to then take that up the hierarchy and say to somebody, you made me feel bad, I don't like how you speak to me, particularly if we believe that and we do that. We do believe this. We believe that people know what they're doing to us. We believe that when somebody else hurts us, that was a deliberate act on their part. And, you know, you've got to ask the question, why the hell would you then go and tell them that they hurt you? Because all you're doing is confirming to them that they have the power to do the thing that um, that you you didn't like. And it's almost like saying, hey, you know how you're a bully? Well, it's really quite effective. <laughs> and that that's that's a rubbish space to be in and, and you can see why people don't do that and uh, megan writes does brilliant work around sort of speaking truth to power um but actually for for somebody who's say a a junior staff nurse or a junior doctor speaking to the matron or the consultant about something that's made them feel bad that they've done is nearly impossible for many people and i think it is unfair for us to put the responsibility for that act 
on the shoulders of the supposed victim, the person who's received it. I don't, don't think that's okay at all because, simply put, our bandwidth is squeezed down. We're not smart when we're having the conversation. We're too scared of what's going to happen. And we end up being either a blubbering wreck or somebody who has like the dams burst. And we go, rah, at somebody. And they're going, what the hell just happened? Because the truth about this is that mostly people don't know how they've made other people feel. They mostly don't know about that. And they're mostly a bit hurt when they find out that they have hurt others. There are a few psychopaths around. And unfortunately, as you get higher and higher and higher up the food chain, you're slightly more likely to encounter a sociopath or a psychopath. Um, and that's for a variety of reasons. It's still not that likely, but you are slightly more likely than you are when, when you're down lower down in the food chain. And I think the responsibility has to move away from the individual to, to deal with that, to having systems which allow bystanders and which allow people who have been trained to have conversations to intervene either in the moment or possibly preferably just after to talk to the supposed perpetrator. And you know, we, we've talked about this a lot. I mean, there are many ways of approaching that. And I'm a massive fan of Jerry Hickson and the stuff that he's done. So that's that's kind of my my summary take home of the response to that we might get into that on a, on another podcast a wee bit more uh, but for me it's about having systems that help to deal with this rather than putting the responsibility back on yeah, the individual that really 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 helps and resonates in terms of circumstances that i remember being in so a board meeting for example with non-exec directors witnessing some this certain behaviors and conversations and tone of language and looking as if to say is this is this not is this how this is not this normally plays out um, and I remember therefore then having a conversation with a non-exec director outside of that board meeting and thinking um oh somebody has actually witnessed it and um, that in itself felt like you, you, you know you're less alone when somebody's actually seen it and and come and spoken to you about it um but and it, so yes i agree i think that um, we need more of that and more strategies and somebody actually do something following on from that um yeah yeah it's um, nice the validation is a, is a good thing you know it's not just you being too bloody soft it's yeah. actually hey that felt pretty uncomfortable from a distance and then the next thing is about how we have those conversations and having people in position to have those conversations who don't think that the person who has been offensive, I'll use that word, um, in the first place, don't think that they were necessarily deliberately trying to be that person. Uh, and, and, you know, there's a skill set within that stuff. And Jerry Hickson's work says it's extremely effective when, when we go down that route and find second messenger systems. So I think we're running out of time. Um, this has been a brilliant conversation and perhaps uh, we should have a part two uh, sometime soon. We've been asking all the guests a couple of questions at the end, which uh, one of which is based around um, a kind of appreciative inquiry approach, um, which is to kind of dream into the future, which could be two years, five years, 500 years into the future. What what would be the best version of the of the future that you can imagine? So is that based on what you've seen in your career, what we've talked about today? I think it, it's building very much on what I what I've said. I think it is that situation where um, 
people really love what they're doing and that they really enjoy the people they're working with and that even when things don't go as planned as expected, everyone gets it, everybody understands that and they only seek to learn from that um, rather than judge you um, and that you realise that um, the world of safety is nothing to fear um, and that um, it's all about those amazing people who come swooping in to help you think it through and um, start to, to design those systems. I kind of imagine we'll have this the most wonderful technology stuff, all this, you know, when you start dreaming about um, exciting interventions that will be um, automatically sending you dump, dump some sort of um, safety escalator that goes, yes, yes, or you can never make a mistake on this. I'm, I'm rambling because I'm just now thinking of this weird space type world where everything is as perfect as it possibly can be. It's just not going to be, is it? So let's go back to re reality. I just think as long as we have a world in which we really genuinely can be human with each other and that everyone belongs, everyone feels like they belong and that they can share and be with each other and that there's a lot of love and a lot of joy um, and that feels that feels a perfect safe system for me. Um, so yeah, I know it's a bit apple pie, but that's what you asked for. <laughs> Absolutely, thank you. Sorry, I was I was busy writing down love as a route to safety, and you know I know you well enough, Suzette, to know what to know what you mean by that, um, and and it feels like a, a really sort of powerful thought. I'm going to go on a shift in three hours. Three hours I start my shift, and I'm starting my shift in the emergency department in Coventry with a whole bunch of new doctors who are day two of the job. And they are rightly terrified. You should be scared coming into a new job with that degree of responsibility. Um, and one of the things that, that we actively try to do, and, and people do it in different ways, is to ask people about themselves, these new doctors, and when we see new nurses and new HCs, ask them about themselves, try and remember their name. Um, make them feel that they have got value to us over and above being a, a unit of working within the NHS. Um, and th I think that that's, that's part of this for me, that, that, that showing of love for your fellow man or woman, although I have to, I mean, I have to be careful about the use of the word love. Um, I have a story about telling Matt Hancock that I thought we needed more love in the NHS. That didn't work very well. <laughs> and, and I can see a really brilliant joke in that and and it's it's not it's not kind so i'm not going to make it um so um we have one last question that we we like to ask everybody i've got a million and one questions for you but we have one last question we like to ask everybody and that is your theme tune what would you like to play in people's heads when suzette woodward professor suzette woodford is coming through the door what would you like them to be hearing You've Got a Friend in Me by Randy Newman. The theme tune to Toy Story. Nice. Nice, nice, nice. It just, love I that. just absolutely love that. For me, um, 
I want to be, I think friend is a beautiful word. I want to be the very best friend I can be to the people I, um, I, I love. I want to be the very best friend I can be to the people I work with. Um, a friend doesn't mean, back to the kind isn't always just about being nice. A friend can be someone who, um, you know, will be there no matter what um, and love you and support you no matter what, but also tell you when you've got, you know, tomato sauce on your cheek or um or actually that dress really doesn't suit you that's you know this is a good friend um and I strive all of my life to be a good friend to the people I work with to the people I love and um the people I'm with every day very nice that's fantastic yeah. thank you so much um so we're going to wrap up now but Suzette is there uh, somewhere you would direct people to to sort of read more of your works. I know you've got at least two books out there and a website um, and on social media. Yeah, um, my um, website um, is has slowed down a little bit because I'm in the middle of writing my third book. So I tend to get really, really kind of um, focusing on, on, make, on doing that. So yeah, I have two books, um, one called Rethinking Patient Safety, the second um, is implementing patient safety and the third book I haven't titled yet um and the third book I hope is I feel like I've practiced now um and the third book is going to be the book um so I'm looking forward to that but lots of YouTube videos people keep taking videos of me which is really a joy but anyway if you ever want to see some of my my talks there you can just google me um and uh, and it'll be on YouTube and I do have Suzette.com Suzette Woodward is no dot in the middle um, dot org um, for uh, my blog, but um, little snippets in there um, just help me think. Um, so they're actually written for me. That sounds weird, doesn't it? Um, so, um, so those are the things that people can do. But uh, do you know what? There are some astonishingly wonderful books that you can read, not by me, um, and that will really, really impact impact you um in so many ways still not safe i would urge everyone to read i really would um uh, but and the work of eric honagle um is always always um something that ev everyone must read eric honagle um and um and the safer healthcare by charles vincent and Renee Amalberto. um but also there are other some lovely quirky ones um in relation to um invisible women um uh, which I think is vital for no matter what gender you are to read. Um, I'm also currently just about to read this, uh, which is a Brilliant Young Surgeon's Journey Through Ambition and Dedication to Exploitation and Burnout. Mm. Um, but again, there are so many books. Come to me uh somehow uh any way you like and i will recommend you anything on any subject because uh, of my interests which i was supposed to tell you about right at the beginning um i am obsessed with reading i read every single moment i possibly can great let's do a book club next time yeah what a great idea <laughs> well, i will yeah as i said this has been fantastic um we're scratching the surface but we've We've uh, uncovered some real gems in this conversation, and hopefully we'll we'll do it again soon. So thanks very much for your time, Suzanne. Thank you. Uh, thank you yeah, so thank much you for inviting me. So that was our conversation with Suzette Woodward. As I mentioned in the recording, we've only just scratched the surface of a number of topics, 
all of which are important to those of us working in healthcare. There are many take-home messages from this conversation. The fact that one size does not fit all when it comes to safety, the challenges of defining safety and how to define culture, and the reference to Vincent and Amalberti's three-part model of safety systems, ultra-safe, high-reliability and ultra-adaptive. These were all highlights for me. But more than any of those, as I said at the beginning, the inspiration for me in this conversation is this clear underpinning of compassion. Suzette reminds us that the reason we do this work is to help others and that the envelope of concern includes staff and colleagues as well as the patients. That's it for now and for this season. We hope to do another season soon, so watch this space.